In addition to obvious, did you just get the text about the possibility of like rolling blackouts or something? Yeah, yeah. So that's one possible reason this could all go awry um, because we're both snowed in. The other being my children are downstairs and my sister-in-law's children are also downstairs right now. So they came over for a play date. Um, So this this whole thing is just rife with possibility for disaster. Wow. Okay. So, you know, just like prepare yourself for that. Karen's dismantling the uh, Evie's bed, her bunk bed by herself. So like there's, there's always a chance there's going to be cursing. I've closed the door, but like no guarantee about anything. I mean, my, I'm, I'm pretty sure my wife broke her toe the other night when the blizzard started so she is cleaning out her closet. She's like, look, we're snowed in. I'm going to take an opportunity to work on something. And she was like pulling something off a shelf. And behind it turned out to be like a glass lotion bottle that fell on her big toe from like four feet up. So, uh, yeah, it's been like two days now. She's like, I don't think it's broken. Like, you know, like, if I she, mean, I've got some gabapentin if she needs some, because I've still got that that like the burn, the burn, the burn. The burn. Yeah, I mean, so that's uh, that was fun. So that was literally like when the snow was coming down and already started to pile up on the streets. Like my toe, my toe is so bad. I'm like, this timing could not be worse. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's uh, it's really cool to finally uh, be recording with you. I say finally because I didn't ask you until now, uh, and you you, you ripped me about this quite a bit. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So for context, uh, if you don't know David, David is my oldest uh, colleague of anyone. Like, uh, so David and I worked together at St. Jude for like 13 plus years. And, uh, now you work, uh, over, uh, in Jeff Schaefer's shop, right? Uh, yeah. T- now see, I'm totally blanking on names. Yes. Jeff Schaefer's my boss. I work with D visible. That's Danushki. Uh, if you don't know her, she's awesome. I replaced, uh, Kevin Flurlidge. Which is always a name drop because I actually, when I went to the home office there up in Cincinnati, I ruffled through his desk and I found his old name plate for his desk. And I took that home and I stuck a big old not Kevin Fleurlidge on, on top of it. So, uh, which is in your backdrop right now. now. Yeah. Like it's, it's fantastic. Right. Um, and this is actually not the first time you've, you've not been a Fleurlidge because previously, um, and I've told at least part of the story before, but you and I back in like 2016 went to Minneapolis for the Edward Tufty seminar, which turned out to be the least interesting part of that trip. Um, sorry, Tufty, <laughs> I would complain, but you blocked me. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, during that trip, you and I were having dinner with Vince Baumel at the Mall of America, and you got a seemingly random Twitter message from some from okay, so. Th- for context, there had been a Twitter account claiming to be Keith Fleurlidge, the fictitious third Fleurlidge brother. And whoever was running it while we were at that dinner, I'm not saying it was Vince. I'm just saying Vince was there, messaged you and handed over the account to you. And you spent like, you know, what, like three to six months as a fake Fleurlidge? I, I think, it, yeah, it was longer than that. It was It was probably closer to two years, all told. And And now it's all come full circle for you. It has, yes. I am definitely not Kevin Fleurlidge in more than one sense. That's that's so wild. It's it's crazy like how long you and I have known each other. I remember uh when I basically I was involved in your interviewing process 
back when we were working at Alsec. At the time, it was me and another coworker, Dan, and we worked in like a back office for the call center. And this back office was sort of like, it was closed off to the call center by a combination lock door, I guess, because they didn't want people going in there. And then the other door exited out to an alley where there were just like, they're like, don't use that alley. You will be assaulted. And it's great. Good to know. Um, and uh, I remember our boss, Martha, asked me and Dan to talk with the interviewees. And it wasn't like a you're interviewing them for technical skills. It was you guys exist in like a tiny fishbowl. So like just talk with these people and see like who who you will get along well with. Because if you didn't get along very well, you're going to be like stuck in this tiny little office. Yeah, that was the greatest interview because we talked about movies, TV shows, comic books, video games. And then we spent, what, another year there in that building before we finally moved out. Oh my gosh, it was a while. So we were in that building. It's really hard to say because all those call center years uh, really feel like the longest three decades of my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were in that call center for a while and there was lots of just craziness all the time. So there was at one point we were switching over to a brand new software for the call center. It was uh, going from Edge, which was this really archaic system, um, but that was really stable to a new Blackboard product that they had bought 90% customized and did not get any documentations or table schemas or anything on. So we were just thrown, like we were thrown into this new product that was completely broken, but also didn't understand how to use it at all. And uh, I remember like we were still getting Jira requests for changes to Edge, like the day before, like in the afternoon. It's like Friday and they're like, yeah, could you like change this field? We're like, you know, this goes away in like two and a half hours, right? Like, why are you putting in requests? It's a, the best years of my life. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because I, you know, you talk about, um, I went to a Christian brothers for high school. It was like a Catholic school run by, you know, the Christian brothers. It's like, and uh, they, they brag. It's like, you're going to have three hours of homework every night. And they made good on that promise. And that's like, it's hell. But then you get to college, you know, like, this isn't that bad. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, you want a paper on Thursday? That's no problem. I'll turn that around in my head. And I think in many ways, like a lot of like just the crazy pressure cooker stuff that we sort of went through for for years, like really prepared us uh, for like quick delivery and a lot of other stuff. Like when every day feels like makeover Monday, you know, it's uh, it makes it easier to to get stuff turned around. Oh, absolutely. Like we went through, you know, basically we're. We were shell-shocked, I think, after both of us kind of transitioned out of previous roles into where we are now. And, you know, we, to some extent, still have, like, the living nightmares uh, of of those those days, you know, spending two hours to come up with something all new from the ground up, uh, constant rolling changes, just like the rolling blackouts that we might be getting. It was, every day was a new adventure. But it was the same old stuff day after day. It it was kind of wild, like just how wild westy things could be at times. I mean, both in our call center days, and then eventually we, you and I like moved into different roles. So I took like a uh, what was it like a business analyst role, which uh, if you were to describe on paper what the business analyst role is, it's just like that guy Tom in Office Space who's yelling about how he's a people person. 
I know this because I actually had to describe it to someone. So there was a there, there was a function there called the Center of Excellence in Analytics. And it was this weird kind of shop where everyone wore suits and ties. Um, there was a guy in charge who was just very kind of cranky. And they would just create like 40-page white papers. So if you wanted a topic from them, they would say, we'll, we'll create a white paper on it. They would go. They also didn't know any of the internal data. So they would go and like look at industry sources and read Forbes and pull together stuff. They'd put together a 40-page document for you after three months much of which would already be outdated. And if you need anything updated, it's another three months to do that. And I remember my boss introduced me to him once I had become a business analyst. Like, so what do you do? I'm like, well, I come from a technical role, but I have a sort of business training background with my education and stuff. So many times there's people in purely technical roles that don't understand the business aspects and what the business client needs. And the business clients don't understand the technical aspects and are asking for the wrong things. And I help meet in the middle and pull together meaningful requirements that help accomplish the business goals. And he's like, well, what good is that? And uh, he wasn't there like a year or two later. And that wasn't that surprising. <laughs> like, when you don't see like how that would be important, uh, that it's not surprising <laughs> that um, that uh, you're, you're not uh, adapting with the times. Oh, old Tommy. But yeah, it, one of my favorites was there was a guy there um, <laughs> avoiding naming names who was previously a pilot. Um, and that was his big claim to fame. I never found out what his call sign was, but I was really disappointed. And I'm when sorry, I let you down on that one, too. You still let me down on that one. Like, we're, we're going to get that eventually. So uh, th those of you that are listening that are that are still there, like, let me know, like, if, if you if you know his call sign. But um, when you think of pilots, you're thinking and I think you were talking about this. You're thinking about, like, what do pilots need? They need, you know quick heads up information that rapidly tells them, you know, what they're needing. They're needing altimeters and they're needing speed and fuel gauges and stuff like that. Uh, so what does he do? He just writes like lots of words. So just like imagine <laughs> like a cockpit that's just like endless paragraphs of information. <laughs> and like, that's kind of like the Tufty class, you know, we're talking about in 2016, we went to this Tufty class and Tufty's whole pitch was PowerPoint's a waste of time. Like power, like, the people at NASA, like PowerPoint wasn't serving them. So I brought in the document. And this is what Jeff Bezos does. You write the document. So you have your meeting. And at the beginning, you give everyone their copy of the document. There's a reading session. You all sit there and read it. And then you discuss it. And it's like, yeah, that's that's great when you're Jeff Bezos. And you can enforce that from the top down. But like, imagine trying to push that from the bottom up and being like, Hey, I know I have no power in this room, but uh, there's a lot of technical stuff we need to understand to have this meeting. And I want all of you to sit here and read this. Like that's a that's a you don't have that power, you know? Uh, no. And the one time I tried to produce a white paper, it was like, oh, this is great. We don't have time for this. What are you gonna <laughs> do with this? And, and that's the most painful part of it. Like the you know you because white papers take so much more time to make. Like they if do. you were to make like a business dashboard or report or some kind of tool that's something that like refreshes and you could use again and if the information changes you don't even have to do anything but if you write a document you're rewriting the entire document the next time you have to do it and it's like if it's not a value added like the first time like you're just hoping like eventually it is like eventually like this thing you know turns around and delivers value so that's what i found kind of hilarious about like that whole uh the whole session with tufty it was like 
I think maybe you've been out of practice and like acting like not practice, like doing stuff, but practice, like participating in the actual getting d things done long enough that you, you assume that everyone else is coming in with the authority of saying that they're Edward Tufty. Um, whereas everyone else is just sort of like ham and egger, like, you know, data people trying to push their way up from the bottom. But I think like you and I, we, we tried to do a lot of like, you know, innovative stuff like data doctor. And, um, you had the, like the, the funniest, like our first data doctor session. Do you remember what you said about like how many people attended? The most, the most people that were in the room were the people from another meeting coming into steel chairs. Yeah. <laughs> Depressing. It's a, we, we had said like, Hey, like we're all, we're like all fired up. Like we're, we're doing makeover Mondays. Like we're meeting people and, you know, networking. Like we, we had sort of, I think this is probably after like TC 17 or something like in Las Vegas. And, you know, we were both still like moderately new and using Tableau, maybe a year and a half out or two years, but we, we were really like, it had really gotten us jazzed up about work and everything. And we're like, Oh, Hey, like this would be cool to have more opportunities to talk about this at work. Like we do, you know, online. So we tried to do stuff like that. And it was just always like dead air. It's like pulling teeth to get people to try it. And, and it's not even that we were coming from a place of, you know, malintent. We were honestly just trying to like, we were enthusiastic. We were excited. We were just trying to like help people that were already coming to us one-on-one -on -one for help. And instead it was turned into, why are we being snobs that we're better than anybody? It's like, we're, we're not. You're asking us for help. We're just formalizing a session for this. I know it was it was one of those things where we're like, wait, what? Like we were just saying like, hey, if you want some help, like you can come here. Like we weren't saying we had all the answers because like Lord knows, like if you were to look back at a lot of our stuff that we were making, then it it's not stuff like we're super proud of in retrospect. Like and that's good. Like that's everyone sort of learns and evolves over time. And I think that's why I like to share um I, the first public viz I did was the M night Shyamalan viz. And that was really based a lot on what you were doing at the time. Cause you were uh, like, you had been using Tableau a little bit longer than me. Cause you had gotten trained and then jumped right into using it. And I got trained. They did let me use it for six months. And then I had to start from nothing. Cause I forgot it all. And at the time they were really into like those sort of info blocks, you know, yes. where we're doing like those blocks where there's like a text statement in there with some numbers. And that's like, when I thought of what data viz was, when I went to make my first one for fun, like to explore topic I wanted, I made something that looked like that. And it's like in retrospect, it's like, oh, well, I wouldn't do it the same now. But, you know, everyone sort of only knows the stuff that surrounds them. Oh, those days were terrible. I remember I used like every color you could possibly imagine of the rainbow on, on the one sheet and... They loved it. They ate it up. They were like, this is the greatest thing ever. And yeah, I'm with you. Like, I gladly I'm out of that stage. Uh, I've shifted more towards like monochromatic with subtle uses of, of colors in order to kind of drive home what you're what I'm wanting people to look at. But back in those days, it was add color because we're moving away from black and white of, of paper to, you know, the color gamut that's available on computer monitors 100% and it's like for the audience especially if they're used to just getting tabular reports of everything if they're like whoa 
there's like a different chart there. You know, sometimes there's like a tree map or something. Or if you're, you've just really lost all control, like packed bubbles. Oh, you know? man. It, it, what surprises me, and this is just going to kind of run the gamut of, uh, of and that's the gamut twice within a minute, probably there. Um, the, when I first started using DataViz, there were no pivot tables on anything. It was charts and it was text. Um, as I as I kind of eased out of that position, they were moving back towards pivot tables, <laughs> and they were just reversing time. And it's like, yeah, I don't know what you're going to do with this. Like, the whole purpose of data visualization is, you know, let us help you find the data faster, not here's data, sift through it and come up with your own stories. I think that's that's really like a sort of profound point. Like every tool isn't the answer to every question. And if for some people, like they they may need a tabular view. But to say that like the tabular view is the correct way to do it, um, isn't isn't like always gonna be the case. And in in many cases, like I know something I do now and some sometimes is like I sort of create like an explanatory thing to help people understand. Hey, look, we're going to be aggregating your data. And when you hear that word, like you get scared because it's it's like sort of a like a loaded word. Like, what does that mean? And what it means is we're going to be adding, averaging, you know, like pulling stuff together just like you do when you're doing it in an Excel sheet. But right. the difference is by applying some level of visualization here. I'm taking out the part where you have to like comb through 400 columns and try to find like the significant things that are either too high or too low or change. Now, so like taking some of those early steps for people that don't have that confidence or, or maybe like unsure or very used to being hands on and like trying to, you know, lead them to a level of comfort. And many times it's baby steps, right? Like you oh, and yeah. I are Adding both a heat map, right? Or, yeah. or color coding some text within a pivot table to just draw out, you know, here's what's important to draw your eye to it. Yeah. Like, uh, like Wexler, you know, in his class and in his book and stuff, he talks about how the, uh, what is it? The highlight table with marginal histogram is the gateway drug to data viz because it starts off with the tech, like the table that they're very used to and very comfortable with. And you add color to it and immediately like, Whoa, hold on. Like, I see, I see the big one there. It's like, right. Like that was, wasn't that better. And then by yeah. adding the histograms on either axis, you're able to quickly see the, the dips and, and rises and you're able to draw context of all those things working together. And rather than having a single chart that, you know, teaches you stuff, you're, you're picking up all these different things and how they relate to each other. And it's just really cool. Like, and, and having, you know, people that have, you know, put a lot of thought into this and, and a lot of like labor and, you know, and, and written books and stuff and, and also made the mistakes ahead of us. Uh, it really makes it it really cool to be able to come along and say, hey, that's a that's a really neat tool that we can use to help people understand stuff better. Oh, absolutely. Data literacy is is always been, you know, one of those kind of foundational challenges you and I, I think, have both faced uh, at, at any of the organizations that we've kind of worked with is you have some people that are very comfortable with onboarding to the idea of I. I'm going to ask you for a number. I don't need to see all the numbers that make it up. Just give me give me a highlight versus the people that are kind of, they're new to it. They're very uncomfortable. They could be called old school, so to speak. Um, and you just kind of got to do whatever you can to help them out. And 
you know, sometimes that means doing high charts. Sometimes that means doing, um, you know, packed bubbles, whatever helps them as much as it pains us as, as, you know, kind of people in our position who know a little bit better than to do some of these things. It, if it makes sense to them, you know, we can, we can help them get over those hurdles of, of data literacy and, and do the bad things just to, to kind of get through the, <laughs> get through those early days. And, you know, sometimes there's, there's like some compromises that you might have to make along the way to get them to where you want them to be. Like, I know, you know, there's some color palettes that are more or less, you know, like accessible or friendly. And sometimes you're told explicitly by like a client or somebody like, these are our colors. This is what I want. And you're like, you know, like you're demanding this. This is something you expect out of this. But I know that maybe this is going to be more clear or more accessible for things. So that might be something where either, you know, you come up with an example for the client where, you know, alternate, like the thing they're asking for isn't quite going to get them to where they need to be. Or maybe you create a parameter toggle where you can switch to the more accessible one and say, hey, look, we're going to default to this just because we know that, you know, colorblindness is a factor and that not everyone's going to be able to see us clearly. But if you want them, all you do is click this and you got your colors, you know, stuff like that. And I think, you know, we, we were talking about like all the weird reps that we had to do back in the day when we were, you know, turning around business dashboards every day, you know, just like, hey, new business dashboard, make it by tomorrow, you know, like, wow, like, you know, in retrospect, having to do a lot of things really swiftly or having to do a lot of trial and error with audiences that were totally unaccustomed to data viz in any way really helps you work through a lot of maybe the bad habits or it helps you understand clients better by having worked with so many of them that you know when someone says this i bet they might mean this so maybe i should ask and i think it's those sort of the people skills that uh, you sort of like the the technical skills are something that you know people can learn through like online exercises and stuff pretty quickly like we see a lot of that kind of stuff where like hey you know in like three months we're going to teach you everything you need to know about how to do x but like what it doesn't necessarily teach you is how to like work with the people who are going to be asking for stuff and that's something that just sort of comes with time and repetition yeah absolutely but yeah um man like it's really hard to like we've been friends for so long and like so much of that time was at St. Jude. Like we we uh co-ran the Memphis Tableau user group together with Wendy, who actually she came over to St. Jude after I had left and shortly before you left. Yeah. And that was that was like a weird thing. So I think you and I were talking about why don't we have a tug? And I think you found the tug page and someone had registered for one, but never actually started it. And it was around the same time I reached out to Tableau and Wendy reached out to Tableau separately. She'd been working at FedEx and all three of us were just kind of like, okay, we'll co-run a tug together. And it was kind of like this grand adventure for like maybe like a year and a half. Yeah. We had what, uh, bi like bi-monthly meetings there for a while, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, just like a lot of groups, we, you know, hit COVID and it just dissolved. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't get back together after that, unfortunately. We went out on such a high note, though, because our very last tug meeting was in February 2020. 
and Anna Ford had come in from Atlanta and then Steve Wexler had come in from New York. So Steve was coming into town to do his class. And I asked him if he would do the tug. And he said, sure. And when I'd asked Anna previously, if she would be interested, she's like, wait, Steve Wexler's coming. Yeah. I'll present in that tug session. So she came into town too. And I think like we had like maybe 40 people there, which is, was like a record for us. Yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a packed house, but to say that it was an odd location. It was like a FedEx annex building on the University of Memphis campus. It wasn't a room. It was like an open space and we were tucked in a corner. Yeah, it was like everything we've always done in terms of like meat space data stuff has always been super ramshackle. Like it's like, I don't know if we've ever had like outside of like, obviously Tableau like sponsors the tug and like gives you money for like drinks and snacks and stuff like that. Like we've never had like on location, like in Memphis, like real support, like FedEx is in a, a massive business and like, they would like their data analysts to be there, but like, now we're not, we're not lending any real support to the tug. Like, you know, <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's always been like it's always felt like total grassroots effort, you know. Oh, grassroots efforts! You remember we wanted to do uh that topic. We what was that for? It, was that a tableau thing? It was for Fringe Festival, um, which was Emily Kuhn's virtual um data festival. It was basically Fringe Festival, and I think it's taken a few years off. I don't know if it's coming back, but it was like mostly the concept was if you would like to present at Tableau conference one day, or you signed up to present, they turned your topic down. Here's your opportunity to present it. So we had pitched a concept. I think we were calling it guerrilla analytics. And yes. the idea being that like we were talking about with our data doctor sessions or stuff like that, you know, we were, we were trying a lot of grassroots efforts to, you know, encourage people to like participate in personal growth. Like, do makeover Mondays, you know, talk with other people about what you're working on, you know, sort of a rising tide would lift all ships. So we pitched this and someone internally saw or heard that we had talked about it and they raised alarm bells because like the idea behind Guerrilla Analytics was that, you know, how do you sort of help create a data culture when there isn't one coming from the top, you know, and they felt that saying that there wasn't one coming from the top cast personal aspersions against where we're working, which we weren't doing at all. Like that wasn't the intent, it, but there wasn't any like executive leadership. There was no, nothing coming from the top, which is why we were doing that kind of stuff. So they said, you absolutely can't do this. And they're like, okay. Um, Cause we like, we show them what we're going to talk about. Like, we have no problem with any of that, but you can't talk about it. And we're like, all right, well, there's a panel. Can we be on the panel? Like, yeah, sure. You can be on the panel. And then we just we talked about everything that we were going to talk about anyway in the panel and they didn't care. And it was it was just so confusing because like nothing we were talking about was remotely controversial or untrue or even negative. It was just like, hey, here's a lot of stuff that we've tried to try to like increase engagement. Here's some things that worked. Here's some things that didn't work. Um, And I think that's all anyone can do. Right. Like, you know, I think sharing wins is good, but sharing losses is equally as important. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, look, I mean, like, and we took a lot of losses and in, in trying to to get uh, stuff going. Uh, but I think it's I think it's really good uh, because it it helps with like tenacity. Like, you know, I remember. Do you remember when we discovered Makeover Monday? Yes. 
like I didn't know what it was at first. So when I put up my first viz, I just hashtag Makeover Monday because I just thought that's what everyone did. Like it's one of those things where there's still not like a actually organic way to find these things. It just kind of happens and you sort of find your way into the ecosystem. I know that's something that they're being, you know, working on. Like, because how else do you know that it even exists unless you just sort of stumble upon it, right? You know, people, you yeah, you really have to just kind of stumble upon it. I know you even started putting it out on some of your shirts that are haven't you? Yeah, like uh actually I'm wearing um my a data punk shirt right now, which has the hashtags for all the community exercises uh, that were active a couple of months back when I made this shirt. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's tricky. Like now on Tableau's official website, they've got a list of stuff, but you'd still have to know to find out. But at least it's like more central now. I think it was a little wild west year back then, but it was it was a really exciting time. You know, it's um, taking like time for personal development and stuff. And where I work now at JLL, like they actually we there's built in time in our like schedules each month for like Ultrix and Tableau growth. So, you know, we do these sessions like Ultrix Adventure and Tableau Quest where, you know, there's some instruction and then there's time to either work on a personal project or community exercise and stuff. And it's just really cool that, you know, there's such a like strong sense of investment in uh, developing talent because so many times that's something I think a lot of organizations would like to happen but don't necessarily know how. And even just like making time in people's schedules, like, hey, for every third Friday, we take an hour and a half, block your schedule and go do like a community exercise. Like that's something that can really um, spur a lot of growth in people because so many times I think like a lot of the projects we worked on when we were, you know, working together, you'd be working on the same programs regularly or the same, same with the same people. And you'd be creating a lot of the same stuff over and over. And when you have the opportunity to deviate from that and work on a different type of data or try a different form of visual, it can help you learn. Like you can make mistakes. You, you can make yeah, bad charts. Stretching you know. new muscles, right? It's like going yeah. to the gym. Like you can do a, a sit up and then you go do a, a crunch or a lunge and you can feel the burn in different places. Same thing by doing different things at work. Um, you're, you're stretching all sorts of different mental muscles in this case. I mean, that's a great point. Um, and you, you actually took some gambles recently at the last, um, at the last Tableau conference, you were part of, what is it like the, the, the contest, uh, the data oh, dealing, the, the tip battle. The yeah. Tip battle. So, you know, at the, at the time I had, uh, I was a, applying at for a, my, the position that I'm at now. And, D works there, works at the same company. And she's like, do you, would you be interested in being a contestant on, at this Tableau tip battle? And I was like, yeah, I guess. Like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to say no. How do you say no to somebody that you're trying to get, you know, to work with? And so I, <laughs> I signed up for that completely, completely unprepared for it. We got the data. I didn't honestly know what I was doing. For the tip battle until the day before I had a bolt of inspiration. So for like two months, I had nothing. I looked at the data and I was like, I got, I, I can't do anything with this. Like I'm so freaked out. What did I get myself into? And then the day before it's like, well, crikey, I know what I could do. I spent the night before, like, yeah, I, I kind of didn't utilize my time at TC that last year the way I probably should have. I skipped out on a couple of things because I was like, I need I need to practice. I need to 
I need to build a viz and that's, you know, it's like building barbell charts, uh, you know, not something that I regularly would do, but like, Hey, I have an, I have an actual use case for this that I think would work. And then, yeah, I'm, you know, got in and unfortunately did not lose. Well, like, fortunately I didn't win, I guess. Cause like I was really not prepared to present a final output, but absolutely, uh, got me doing things that I wasn't normally used to. I mean, like Lisa, Lisa Trescott had an unfair advantage, I think, because she prepared jokes and like I, I like the jokes help. Like, let me tell you, like, I'm not I'm not saying it wasn't fair, like because anyone could have made jokes, but like she had like like they were some legit like dad jokes ready for each round. And like no one was expecting that. You know what? I'm going to say it was all an unfair advantage because I'm pretty sure I was the only non-visionary that was participating. So, like, they've all kind of had the feel of being under the spotlight, right? And they've kind of come to be at terms with that. And then there's the new guy who's trying not to piss his pants <laughs> and embarrass himself. Well, with any luck, you'll be pissing your pants again soon because I want us to host the next one. I like I would, that. That would be so awesome. Yes, I. You know, we'd have to figure out a data set for it too, though. So, hmm, hmm. we could do. If 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 only there was something like no. not that we can say anything. But I mean, it could be. You know what? It could honestly be any any data set that's out there. There's, you know, Tableau just worked. Um, with IMDb to produce the data plus movies data set that's out there. And so there's a, there's a massive amount of things that you could do with that. So like, obviously I love that data set, but you like took a totally different approach on it. So my first thing was like, I want to know how these celebrity groupists interact. So I was like the rat pack, the frat pack, the brat pad, and like slamming them all together with the network diagram. You decided to take the opportunity to learn Tableau prep off of it. So like it was a huge workbook, right? Like the Tableau workbook was like half a gig. Um, yeah. So and the story is I went, I got excited about Tableau uh, data plus movies. I went out there and I downloaded it and I was really, really disheartened by the fact that it was a gig in size. Um, and I was like, holy gosh, what is this? And I, I downloaded the extract, right? And I opened it up in Tableau. And it's just a single table. It's a, one entity. It's deep and wide, right? There's 800. Oh, well, there's not that many. There's like 60 columns. And it's just a lot of repeated data. And I was like, oh, God, this is terrible. There's got it. Like, why didn't they make this a relational data structure like e they did that even with like some of the superstore stuff right so like they have a data model that they can use with the noodles and the relationships and and they didn't they didn't do that and i was like well i don't have alteryx i confirmed with my boss jeff like do we have access to tableau prep he's like yeah and i was like great so i installed tableau prep after work um started playing with it like i'd never you really used prep before the one one time i'd used prep previously was i opened up somebody else's prep flow to make a change to a data base element and and give it back to them but that was it this was my first time using tableau prep at all and like it's phenomenally easy to use like i, I mean i'm not a dummy but like I was able, I was able to 
build a, a single workflow within a matter of days that took their extract, produced the same, um, same data elements, but compressed down to a quarter of the size. So, so basically with Tableau, you know, data plus movies, you download it, you download the workbook, right? You create a viz, you publish it back up. All that data is still there though. So you've got a gig of data sitting out there and you're using a fractional component of it. So every one person that does a data plus movies viz, that's a gig of data being stored on their web server. Whereas I've created something that four people can create a four viz, unique vizs and it still only amounts to the gig in size. So like it's compounding, right? And so, yeah, Tableau Prep, way, way easy to use. Like I think I went through three iterations. One, the first two were basically, how do, how do I use, the first one was, how do I use Prep? What are, the, what are the things that I can do? What do I want it to output? The second one was, well, let me start putting the pieces together a little bit more uh, efficiently. And the last one was, well, great. I've created 14 different flows to create 14 different outputs. I really, there's got to be a way to do this all in one, right? So step three was build an all-in-one prep flow. And it is a, it is a rabbit's warren of, of you know, connecting tissue. Um, but it, it, it worked. Like, it's... It was it amazed me by how easy it was. So I've actually played around with prep for a second project that I don't I don't know if I should mention. Um, but it's actually gotten to the point where like I'm engaging with some people about how easy prep is to use, and I'm super excited about what you know what the future holds on a you know personal uh product level about what I can put out there for, for the community. I think that's really cool. Like I know, you know, prior to using prep for you and me back when we were at uh, St. Jude, like we were doing all SQL data modeling, right? Like, so yes. we were doing, you know, creating our own sort of procedures and, you know, joining tables and all that. And we didn't have like many tools outside of that. So, you know, sometimes you're using initial SQL in Tableau for a little extra data, you know, a little, uh, <laughs> But um, honestly, for me, like coming to JLL, like I've had Alteryx for a few years and that was a big eye opener for me, especially if you're coming from understanding SQL and, you know, how tables and joins and all that behavior work. Um, you can apply a lot of that with the tools and make it a lot easier. And I know prep is really similar. Did you have to watch any tutorials or anything or was it just that intuitive? There was there was one thing that I had to had to figure out. So one of the key things that I used in order to shrink the data model down was Instead of using, uh, so the Data Plus movies, they have like the the IMD identifier for a person um, is an NM. It's a it's a character string. It starts with an NM and then it's a bunch of numbers. And then for titles, it starts with a TT and a bunch of numbers. And that's the unique identifier for a person or a thing, right? Well, that's not very efficient from a data modeling perspective, which um, I think anybody who understands how database databases work you, strings aren't the greatest things for for uh connecting things because it requires a lot more processing power to relate those integers are fantastic 
Um, and they can also be 100% unique depending upon how you build it out, right? And so one of the things that I did in, in my condensed version is I, I created a, an integer-based unique identifier. So by doing that, I was able to create all of these related objects like, you know, people. Um, if Sean Connery acts in 50 movies, I don't want to store his name 50 different times. That's a lot of space. I can store his name once with a unique unique number identifier, and that takes far less space And uh, from a relational database perspective, or even in the case of how Tableau's relational data model works, it's very, very efficient to be able to join those two. So you've sort of, you know, you and I go for walks like three times a week. And I think like in the past, like maybe month and a half, you've been having like a bit of like, you know, like a bromance first with um with prep and now with radials too. So like you <laughs> put out you put out two radial centric vises. Um and I think both are based on the um the data plus movies data set, right? Uh like, the first one is based off of the data plus movies. The newer one, the Doctor Who visual is based off of a side project that I'm working on. That's cool. Yeah. So um you you did this really cool into the movie verse data set which uh has nicholas cage uh, as front and center as it should um but like this was your you know you're taking the data plus movie data set and like relationally like dealing with those different layers of relationships actors uh, have appearing with each other like you want to tell me more about that because like you were talking about map layers in this and i am i'm the first to say I am woefully ignorant in terms of map layers. Like you were explaining them to me the other day. And for the first time, like I started to wrap my head. I'm like, oh, that's what's going on. So you used map layers to create uh, this radial. What, what's going on with the movieverse? Oh, okay. The How the movieverse viz works? Yeah, hit me. All right. So unfortunately, it is a little bit slow because there are millions of people in, in the data set, right? So what you do is you get to select an actor and it goes through and it says, what movies has this actor worked in? Okay, what related actors starred in those films? And then of those people, what movies did they star in and what people were other people were in those films? And each layer it's going through and it's making sure that like those people haven't already been been working so that the people in level three aren't included in the in the level two and they're not included in the level one and so yeah it's there's millions of calculations that are being performed so it's a it's a little bit slow of a viz but it's really really fun um when i first showed it to my work crew though i had inadvertently set it to ron jeremy <laughs> which if anybody doesn't know who that is he's an adult film star in the United States. Um, now, I believe that IMDb and Tableau, when they released this viz, I haven't gone through to verify this yet, but I'm guessing that they hopefully stripped out the adult film titles. Um, I, You know, I might have to go in and search. I might you might have, have to. Have to. Later. That's an after hours project for sure. The the first time I ever heard of Ron Jeremy was back during uh, the heyday of NSYNC. Because their clever idea was that whenever they would check into a hotel, they would check in under the name Ron Jeremy. And like their fan base caught on to this. 
Uh, so they started showing up at hotels where Ron Jeremy was booked. And like one time it was Ron Jeremy, Ron Jeremy and not in sync Ron Jeremy, um, which is like, yeah, it's like you know, maybe, you know, some somebody more innocuous than Ron Jeremy as you're you're calling. I remember you telling me you're, you're looking at the connections like who's most connected. And I think you were telling me about Eric Roberts, right? Yes. Who's sort of the classic character actor and he's Julia Roberts brother, like sort of a mafia tough guy dude who was like super connected. Oh, yeah. He he had some the way I filtered it down was who are the people that I would be aware of? Right. So I was born in 1983. Right. And so I've had what is that 40 years as of the data data available in the set uh, of of people that I could have potentially been exposed to. Obviously, I've watched movies from before I was born, but I just kind of wanted to limit the data set in some way that was that was meaningful to me. So I narrowed it down to that and I looked and I'm like, who the heck is this guy? It's like I was expecting bigger names. What I what I didn't think of though was like, yeah, like not so great actors have to take on more roles in order to have, you know, a lifestyle that is that they can actually live with. They're not the big names. They're not like, you know, Chris Evans or or um, you know, Julia Roberts. Like her own brother has to like really schlep it in order to get some get some money in the bank but the man had a ton of of movies and they just got worse over time you know it's really fun to see those kind of like those sort of b and c list character actors like one of my favorites is peter stromare who plays like the the balding russian guy and everything like he's got the big widow's peak and he played like the russian astronaut armageddon like that dude is in everything, usually playing the exact same character. And it's like he's really good at it. And it's like there are people like that who when they're looking for, you know, this, this, like, give us a Peter Stromare type. It's like, how about Peter Stromare? I think we can afford him. Like, yes, do that one. You know? <laughs> and then, they, then they bring him in, you know. And so it's really cool that there's like sort of a whole class of actors like that who you'll see them in different stuff and you might not know their names, but you recognize them. It's like this guy from the thing, you know. And like that, that's like a vis in itself, like the guy from the thing, like this whole network as sort of the showbiz working class who just go around appearing and stuff. And, you know, they've got like a specific like they're a pinch hitter that they're the job that they're called in for. Like this, this is our mafia guy. Go get him. You know, I mean, the, the data set's fun. Now, the only thing that they're really missing that I wish they had kind of snuck in there was like actors that have died. Like, when did they die? Like. I think it'd be really interesting to understand, like, how did movie ratings, like, posthumously perform for them? That's a good point. So if you could, uh, you could incorporate in their, uh, their date of death and movies that came out within a certain span of that, did they receive like an uptick or something? Right. Um, that would be an interesting data set. I, I always miss uh, the, the box office uh, on stuff. Like, I want to see the money. Um I had put together something like on Marvel movies not too long ago about uh, the different box offices versus budgets and sort of the ratios between those. And once you get past like the Avengers core movies themselves, the team movies, it's like the next my analysis was uh, this is uh, they either need to make another Spider-Man movie or another Captain Marvel movie, because in terms of return on investment, those movies have been really great for them. Well, it turns out neither of those works for the MCU because they tried another Captain Marvel movie. And after the first one made over a billion dollars, 
The second one, like, made maybe 200 million. Like, it was a dramatic fall off. And, like, in retrospect, it's kind of like, well, it's, it did so. The first one did so well because of its placement. It was between the two big Avengers movies. And they said, we're, in, we're now introducing the most powerful Avenger of all. You have to see this to watch the other movies. Like, that's back when everyone watched everything. Like, oh, yeah, like, that makes sense now. And the reason the Spider-Man movies won't work for Marvel is because they don't even reap the box office benefit. They get maybe 10% of it because Sony owns all the film rights. So while Marvel benefited from the synergy of Spider-Man movies, they didn't personally make like a ton of money off those. So I'm like, I don't know what to tell Marvel to make right now based off of that. But I can tell you my own analysis was uh, not taking into context a uh, release schedule, <laughs> which uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, but like, who who can say how much a Captain Marvel movie is worth if it's not released between two Avengers movies? All we know is that, you know, they're they're in a bit of a struggle right now. And uh, I'm I'm actually working on a Marvel TV project, you know, because they've been doing TV shows as like Marvel television since they released like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. back around the first Avengers movie. So it's really interesting to sort of stack up the different TV shows because they've had the studio itself has done shows on ABC then Netflix and now Disney Plus. And that's not counting things where they just sort of license the rights. Like uh, FX uh, had Legion, which was an X-Men spinoff show, which is, I think, one of the best uh, Marvel shows I've ever seen. Like, it was great, but no one knows about it. It was sort of bizarre and artsy. Um, but yeah, it's it, I'm going to have a lot of fun sort of stacking up these different shows and networks and like trying to figure out you know, where the quality is uh, to be found in this um, because, you know, they've had some ups and downs uh, with television as well. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that you can think of is like how, what, you know, there's a lot of shows that it's not new. Like they, they're re-releases, right? Like think of uh, how, how, how well does the, uh, oh, um, Hawaii Five O show stack up against this re-release. Um, I did with Doctor Who, you, I put both the the original 1963 series as well as the 2005 relaunch in there in the data set, um, just to just to see how things kind of rolled because it's the, with Doctor Who, it's it's a relaunch, it's a continuation of a storyline that was set up in the past. Um, whereas with you know the TV shows like you know MacGyver and um, Hawaii Five-0 and you know, all sorts of different ones where they're complete reboots. Like how well do they compare to the originals? Battlestar Galactica. That'd be a phenomenal one to look into. But then Absolutely. you have a lot of you have a lot of TV shows that have spun off uh, either onto other TV shows or they've gone out and they've created tie-in movies. Um, Firefly has Serenity. Um, there's the uh, Jump Street movies as well as a Jump Street TV show like Baywatch the Baywatch the multiple Baywatch series, right? I think there were several of them. Um, Doctor Who had a bunch of different spinoffs that I didn't even know of. Like, and if anybody wonders, K9 was the worst spinoff they had. Go check out the Doctor Who Viz. Like, That's not surprising. Abysmal. You know, it's it's really interesting. Like, you know, you're talking about like Battlestar Galactica. The, the reboot was something you and I were both massive fans of. We're both a little too old to have watched the original, which was really kind of like a Star Wars like knockoff, right? Um, but it's interesting to like 
with the cycles of media now and like intellectual property, because that's really what all these conglomerates treat it as like, hey, we own this idea, so we're going to do it. So you'll have things like The Equalizer, which started as a TV show, became a movie series with Denzel Washington, and then became a second TV show later starring Queen Latifah. So it's like something will like loop back to where it started but like in a totally different place, having taken on these different evolutions as it's moved along and, you know, being able to compare those things and like, you know, what was viewership like? I mean, you know, what were ratings like? Viewership is something interesting. I wish we had more more data on, but that's impossible for so many things, particularly streaming. Oh, yeah. But like it used to be like in, you know, when we were kids or even before that, like there was only a handful of networks. So viewership on shows was massive. And now it's like, uh, you know, like a hit show might have 3 million views and like a hit streamer on YouTube might have 15 to 20 million views on their video, you know? So it's like some kid who I guess now lives in a mansion um, is is out, you know, stripping like the CNNs and, you know, network televisions of the world, you know? All, all so that we can figure out what what to do in Fortnite, right? I mean, look, I... The, <laughs> I think I played like three or four rounds ever. And my second round, I made it to second place just because I hid. And then when the guy found me, like it was very ugly. Like I, he killed me almost instantly, but like just being a coward and hiding in Fortnite can serve you well. You're not going to have fun, but like you'll, you'll go far. Like I wouldn't make it well as a, a streamer. Cause I'd just be like, okay, like they can't see me. And they'll be like, why are you whispering? Like, I, I don't know. I'm hiding. Like, I feel like I should whisper. <laughs> They can't know where I am. <laughs> they can't see me. I'm behind the tree. Yeah. Now, one thing that you you brought up, so map layers. I've run into one problem that I need to figure out with map layers. If anybody listening to this wants to throw a bone my way, I would love to hear it. But uh, the way that maps in Tableau work, it's a traditional Mercator one, right? It's it's everything gets stretched out the further away you get from the equator. And so when I was building map layers and going with radial, it works very well when the scope is very, very small, mm. like within 30, arbitrary number I found, but it works. As, as soon as I started exploring a larger size of a radial, everything just got stretched out to be just odd. So I, I think, I think uh, somebody recently, it may have been one of the Fleurlidges, put out something about like different types of maps that they that they drew in Tableau. So I might need to investigate some of those. But if obviously if anybody listening, yeah, can help me understand how to how to do away with the the stretching that occurs with, you know, trigonometric functions in a map layer in Tableau. Yeah, that's a very niche audience right there, I'm sure. You know, some nerd. That, and by nerd I mean Ken Flerlidge has figured out how to adjust for this. Uh, but I, I think like, you know, with, with Tableau gestures, which they've been teasing since uh, Tableau conference last year, you know, it's the Xbox Connect of Tableau, except good. Um, one of the things they keep showing on there is a globe. And I'm looking forward to the possibility of new map types. Like if the, the, the implication that a globe exists in Tableau uh, implies other map types as well. And I think for map-based folks, that's an exciting prospect, I think. You know, think about map layers of the globe, like understanding like, oh, it's totally circular now instead of like oblong with a distortion around the edges and stuff like that. So 
maybe stuff like that'll be more possible or maybe Ken Flerlich already knows the answer because I just assume that he probably does. Sorry, Kevin. I just assume Ken knows it. Um, yeah, like that's a really good question. Yeah, you're, we were talking about that. And that's one of the interesting things. It's like having talked with like um, Maps Overlord a long time ago about maps and just so many of the assumptions I know I make about maps. And I think everyone does. You just particularly using maps as a lay person to geography and, and maps. There's a lot we assume about them. And uh, it's I, I think, you know, maybe more robust map features uh, in the future or at least the ability like if you already know people are using map layers for this kind of thing, the ability to just essentially flip off the geographic distortion. That would be great. Yeah. So, man, yeah. it has been uh, almost an hour, and it's been a lot of fun, especially since we can't go for a walk because we're both snowed in and possibly under risk of them turning off our power at any moment. Um, is there anything you want to, like, shout out or promote right now or, like, I don't know, vendettas you want to announce or any, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody has has not already heard, but they have they've relaunched uh, Makeover Monday, so new crews kind of heading that up. So again, like like Zach was talking about, if uh, if the barrier to you getting into data visualization is you just don't know what's out there, there's a ton of stuff. Makeover Monday being one of them. Um, Sports Viz was it Sunday? Sunday? Yeah, Sports Viz Sunday. Yeah, that's another one. I don't do sports at all in any way but uh there's a lot of really fun stuff out there uh to get people engaged and hopefully uh we'll all be seeing each other here in the what tail end of april for tableau conference yeah it's, uh, it's just around the corner it's, it's real close i know when's registration open guys when are they opening up for speakers when, when are you opening like when's it happening guys like Will Perkins, I know you're listening, but you're banned. Like you have contacts. Like, like ask, man. Come on. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming on, David. I'll see you. Bye.